Jake Bryden, episode three, Mouth of the South, and we have a special guest today, Derek Haddad, and he wrote an incredible book, They Must Be Monsters. And the connection with Derek, Derek reached out to me on Twitter. Yeah. On Twitter because the McMartin case, which is what this book is about, and, and you've studied this case for how long? 35 years. For 35 years. I felt like I had a lot in Greg's case, but he's got 35 years in this, and he actually wrote the book on it, and it's about the McMartin... It's the, it's called the McMartin Preschool Case. Okay, the McMartin Preschool Case, and what time frame was this? The first allegation was on August 12th, 1983. The case was indicted in March of 84, and the trial lasted until July of 1990, so it's the longest, most expensive criminal proceeding in U.S. history. To this day, what's your um, history, Derek? How did you originally get involved in this case? I I was reading about it, and there was a connection through your parents. Correct. My my mother and stepfather were experts in the topic of child sexual abuse. My stepfather, a man named Lloyd Martin, was a controversial figure, and he was a detective for the LAPD who started the child sexual assault division for the LAPD. My mother was a victim's advocate. So I grew up knowing a lot about the reality of pedophilia and child sexual abuse in the mid to late 1970s and early 80s. So it was very interesting when I first got a call from my mother to watch for my stepfather on 60 Minutes. He was being interviewed by Mike Wallace. Um, she said he's going to be on and uh, about this case. And I watched the segment. He wasn't on. He didn't make the – he was on the editing floor. But I was fascinated to find out that the segment was about how these people are potentially innocent because I was like, wait a second. You guys have always been against the accused because they were – they knew the reality of the crime. Um, I went uh, about a month later on Christmas Eve and talked to them about the case. And I said, you know, why do you think these people are innocent? And they – I discovered then that they had actually been hired for a year and a half by the McMartin defense – hired on to examine all the confidential documents of the case, to examine all the taped interviews of the children, to go through the police reports, to examine the medical evidence. And the rhetorical challenge that Danny Davis, who was Ray Bucky, the chief defendant's attorney, said to them was, if you can prove my client guilty, then I won't defend him. It was a rhetorical challenge because he knew they wouldn't be able to prove him guilty because he knew there was no evidence. Um, eventually, they came to the side of saying, you think these people were falsely accused? Unbeknownst to me, they had been my folks had been traveling down to L.A. to the to the uh, jailhouse to meet with Ray Bucky and his mother. They had become friends with them, and I didn't know all this. They kept it quiet. Um, the key to the case at this time this is this is Christmas Eve, nineteen eighty seven. I'm sorry, nineteen eighty six. This was Christmas Eve, eighty six, July twenty. I'm sorry, December twenty fourth, nineteen eighty six. And when he said to me, the key to the case is this woman Judy Johnson who made the first accusation in the case. Her accusation was false and it spun out of control. I said, well, so what's the deal with her? He says, well, we'll never know what the deal is with her because she just died five nights ago. Mm. She was found dead in her home on December 19th, 1986. So the mystery of the case, the truth of the case, was ultimately lost with her death. That got me going on the case, studying the case. I did a speech communications um, speech on it for my, my next semester. My roommate, Matthew Leroy, who's my co-author on the book, who I described earlier, unfortunately passed away this last uh, New Year's Day of this year of, of colon cancer. Had a, uh, and literally, we published the book in July 2018, and wow. six months later, he got diagnosed. It was almost like maybe, you know, uh, it was just meant to be to get this thing done when we did because it just he accelerated really badly. Anyway, 
Uh, he was one of my roommates. He was about four years older than me. I was 19 at the time. He was 23. And um, Matt actually really became the driving force behind it because he was working at a law firm at the time um, called Gray Carey Ames and Fry in San Diego. We were going to San Diego State. That's what school we went to. And uh, he went in. This was back in the day, you know, when there was microfiche. And, you know, this is a long time ago, right? So um, there was a there was a, a program called LexisNexis. And it's what I recall uh, it. Right. And it was the database, know, the database. Right. And so he went to the information broker at the, at the law firm, you know, college, college intern is what he was. And, uh, they printed out every article. He printed out every article on the McMartin case. And this is, this is 87 and the case had been going on already since 84. So it was, it was the preliminary hearing had just ended. So it was an 18 month long preliminary hearing, the longest in California history. That's how big this case was because there were so many kids involved. And How so, many kids total were involved? I mean, there was up to 300 kids at one point. Then it whittled down to 150, down to 80, down to 60, down to in the, at the end. But the time the trial ended, there were 13 remaining kids. But it was as many as 300. And if you're not familiar with this case, the thousand-foot view of this case is that initially one person came forward, made an accusation against Bucky. What was his last name? Uh, his name was Ray Bucky. Ray Bucky. Ray Bucky. Okay, against Ray Bucky and said, hey, this guy's molested my two-year-old son. Right. Um, you know, I have a seven-year-old. It's hard for me to remember exactly what they were like at two, but I know they weren't saying much. He wasn't verbal. Right. When he, he wasn't verbal at the time. Right. The the, the allegations, and, and again, not to get ahead of ourselves, but the allegations at the time were primarily allegations coming from his mother. So when they interviewed the, the child, as you can see in the book, he says very limited things because he's a nonverbal two-and-a-half-year-old child. So, I mean, you know, I don't want to say nonverbal like he was slow or special needs. He, he, he just was a two-and-a-half-year-old kid. Yeah, he yeah. just wasn't you know? talking. Yeah, right. So the allegations were primarily what the mother was saying he was saying to her in private. And when you got into the verbose nature and the descriptive nature of what she was saying, he was saying, okay, so. it made absolutely no sense. So it's, it's like, why is the police detective even documenting this as being something to follow so, up so, upon? Because it's so... So just to follow up on that, we're talking about, and I briefly touched on this, um, not to go too far into it, because you'd, you'd said that you guys had to taper it down a little bit for the right. editorial um, reasons. But um, some of this stuff was... Uh, naked children riding on horses, um, air hoses being put well, let's, on children's well, well, yeah, and let's, and let, I mean, let's just, I want I want to clear one thing up real quick that Jake just asked, because when Jake talks about the initial allegation in this case, which was which, which was by Judy Johnson, the initial mother of the first child, and there's a whole story there that we can get into at one point here, but how she came forward and made her accusation was a hundred percent different than how every other child got involved. So, um, do you want to go into that? Yeah. Or, or, or are we getting the off? first? No, the, the, the first thing that I really want to unpack is so that people watching this that don't know anything about this case, haven't read your book, that people can understand what the big idea behind the whole thing is. Now, if you watched Outcry, you know that this case was referenced by a child psychologist. Right. And I think that the general consensus by most um, psychiatric professionals is that this is a case uh, to learn from of what not to do when interviewing children and where it comes in, you know, to play as far as one of the things that we're trying to accomplish with mouth of the South is we really want to open people's minds to that may be potential jurors one day to all of the things that can go wrong 
if an investigation, if an allegation isn't handled properly. So when I when I watched that psychologist in outcry use the the, um, the McMartin case, one of the things that stuck out to me was she was pretty clear that you know the fin- fantastic claims that were derived from this initial allegation, yeah. the way the police handled it, and what that snowballed into was like. The, the just a big warning to everybody that says, "Hey, this thing can get out of control really, really quickly right. if you're not careful." Now, back all that up. We want to hear about how crazy and how fantastical it all became, right. which is why you wrote this book. But just to clue in people that have no idea about the McMartin case, I want to also give them that. Just drive by of it. We got involved thirty five years ago, the way you got involved six six years ago. Sure. So so uh, we were just two college kids, nobodies, in dealing with a case that both sides were completely apart. There was believers versus non believers mm-hmm. because this wasn't just a case about one guy, Greg Kelly. This was a case where people believed there was a conspiracy of seven teachers who for, who for years had been molesting kids underneath the radar because nobody ever nobody ever suspected anything so it's almost like there's no evidence it must be more sinister and evil and maniacal than we ever could imagine because we never saw any evidence so they had to hide it all up they had tunnels they buried all the evidence that's how crazy it got but my point is as two college kids we studied every article every every bit of information you could get on the case we studied now at the same time we had access to information because of my folks that I'm not going to reveal my sources, but bottom line is we went in and we took all the information and we, we shouldn't have had. You stole it. We stole the information. So <laughs> we, and yeah, we were we just two, and we were just two college kids, but we were we were not supposed to have. No, we didn't publish anything. Sure. We used it to to go after what we wanted to get, but we had confidential police reports that nobody had seen that the public hadn't seen. We had interviews of children that the public had never seen. We had ev- medical uh, evaluations of children that the public had never seen. We knew we couldn't print it. We couldn't put it in the publication, but we were able to use it as a springboard to start an investigation to go after what we thought we needed to get to to get to the truth. So uh, long story short, we studied every article ever written on the case. After about a year of doing that, we left San Diego, moved to Los Angeles in January of 88 because the trial was just beginning, the actual trial trial. So the preliminary hearing went for a year and a half. There was about a year break, and then the trial started in January of 88. And so we started attending the trial and investigating Manhattan Beach. What we saw was more than a courtroom drama. To us, it was a story of the community of Manhattan Beach, a unique community where a mass hysteria took place and completely broke down this community. At the time, being college students, we were studying various books on the case, and one of the things that really motivated us was Arthur Miller's The Crucible. Right. Because he wrote The Crucible in the McCarthyism witch hunt era of the early 50s allegorically to as an allegorical play to the events of the day, which was McCarthyism. And he used Salem as a way to show society this is what happens when we when we act this way, when we when we have mindless persecution of our friends and neighbors, this is what happens. When we lose our ob- objectivity, objectivity completely. So I, yeah. I, I, before you arrived, I read this out loud. We are what we always were in Salem, but now the little crazy children are jangling in the keys of the kingdom and common vengeance writes the law. 
and that was Arthur Miller in an interview with the New Yorker in the '90s talking about these cases. Yeah. So he was he was saying then Arthur before he died Arthur Miller saying that we're witnessing here a new phenomenon a new witch hunt all over again and we're not recognizing what we're doing here to people and that's what Arthur Miller even said himself that the now the little crazy children are jangling the keys of the kingdom. Well, and I'm going to argue that every single generation has their witch hunt. I'm sure right. Did, right. Um, in, in the 80s, it was this satanic right. believe the children stuff. But we're seeing that today. You know, yeah. we're we're seeing that in uh, the vilification of police officers. Look at how Absolutely. quickly people are willing to just go crazy Absolutely. and lose all basis of reality. And you're watching something that had we watched it just a year ago, everybody but would be like, hey, that's totally that's justifiable. Never gonna, never gonna and happen. now all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, that's murder. And it's well, like, no, I, I it's wanna, not. I want to finish the thought I had a minute ago, and I will, but I want to read to you from my author's note that this is what I published published two years ago. Ironically, I'm afraid, with all of our progress and advancement, we've devolved in the most subtle ways. A simple accusation, true or contrived, enters the news cycle and moves across the airwaves before facts are verified destroying reputations before due process takes form. False narratives incite angry mobs into the streets where they loot and burn down businesses in some misguided act Yikes. of retribution. Across the globe, our fellow countrymen are beheaded by zealots, yet our interest wanes as the next newsflash hits our smartphones. Sadly, after so many volumes of history as our reference, common sense and decency continue to take a backseat to a salacious story. People hear what they choose to hear. They believe what they choose to believe. There is no defense against a wave of passion. There is no reasonable defense. That's powerful, huh? Are you a writer or a prophet? I just <laughs> I got good. I, I did the same. Gus, look at that. I'm like, you know, and that's something that I've been seeing. And the way that I've kind of described it to my friends is because I've been in this little funk lately. And that funk is this, realizing how close to the animal species we as human beings actually are, and, and particularly gazelles, right? If yeah. you look at a, a, a herd of gazelles and you've got 500 of them and they all got horns on their head. And, and if a, one single lion approaches, what do all the gazelles do? They turn and run. And so they're part of a herd. They depend on the herd for protection, but the way that the herd protects the individual is just by providing more targets to, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to the lion. And so instead of turning around and using their horns and sticking it in the side of a lion, right. they all run. And unfortunately the slower ones get taken out. Right. But what the antelope are too stupid to realize is, Hey, right now it's, it's uh, Joe, but you know what? Guess what? You're getting older. Right. And at some point, once they kill all the slower ones, they're coming after you. Right. And so as a herd, as a, as a species, we have two choices. We can be that herd that is doing exactly what you're talking about. The media puts a headline and we all go a certain direction. Right. Or we can choose to be that antelope that says, oh, no, I, I've, got, right. I've got Joe on this deal. And I'm going to stick what little horns I have right in that lion's side. And hopefully... Other gazelles will follow me in that. Now, it typically doesn't happen as as uniformly as you'd like, but I have started seeing that there are people that are going against that grain that are standing up and saying, no, listen, the whole world can be wrong about this and I still be right. Just because everybody else is saying that it's, that it's true doesn't make it true. There's a truth and there is 
whatever else, not true falsities, whatever it is, there's right and there's wrong. And that's where I see the difference between what we did and you did. And I'm saying this as a major compliment to you. We were in the same boat where the, our, our friends were saying to us, you know, you guys are crazy. These people are guilty. I mean, I mean, because this was in the middle of it. It was, it was. There's no way 300 people said but, they did this and but, they didn't do it. But you did what you did. I'm not kissing your ass here. Right. I'm saying you did what you did with on a hunch that you thought this guy was innocent and it was you were doing the right thing. I actually had inside information. Right. I actually saw information that said, "Wait a second, this is bullshit." Yeah. I know this, and I got an expert in the field who also studied it for two years who told me this is bullshit, and I've seen the documentation. So. And if you had a bias, your bias probably would have had you go the other way because you come from a law enforcement family. We came from a law enforcement family, sure. and I came from a family that where we actually studied the reality of what pedophilia was, as, as creepy as that is to have to say right. it, but we knew it. And this was not, as much as Ray Bucky, the chief defendant in this case, was an odd bird and a mama's boy and a little bit of a slacker and kind of a, a non-underachiever, uh, he wasn't a pedophile. Right. And and he didn't act like a pedophile and he didn't do the I mean, I want to go back, jump back now since I did that little reading and finish my thought on the Arthur Miller thing. because I think this is important. Sure. This is what we thought, what motivated us at the time when we were studying the crucible in college. We, we, we read about how Arthur Miller went back to Salem 300 years after the Salem witch trials and studied the ledgers of all the old documents and the old records, because the crucible is a fictitious play. It's not. It's not, but but he tried to make it as close to the truth as possible. That he went back and researched and said, "Here's all the documentation we have to bring this to life, to make it as real as possible." But still, to this day, even when you read all the books on Salem, the historians are really have are mixed on what they think actually happened. They have the story of they think the Tatuba, the 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 the, a, a, the East Indian slave was doing black magic with some of the girls, and that's what spawned the hysteria and blah, blah, blah. And there's other books like Salem Possessed, which talk about how there was land involved, and there was politics involved, and, and many different motivations of what might have caused it. When we were looking at what occurred at Manhattan Beach at the time, we felt we were looking at the, the, the most prominent witch hunt or crucible in American society. Modern day. S modern day since Salem, or at least the closest to, to Salem. I'll get into that in a minute. But our point was... If we want to be good historians, if we want to really help, we can't stop this trial. This is too big. This is a monster that's out of control. We can never stop it. But what we can do is we can capture this in real time. We can document this and try to get authentic information on this so that we have as close to the reality of what actually occurred in real time on paper, which historians of Salem never really could do. That is amazing that at 19... You, you had the situational awareness right. to, to know that you could possibly be setting yourself up to do something that could make a right. impact on the world. Yeah, I mean, the first line, and I'll, I'll go one more quick read from that author's note, but the first line of the author's note, I say, um, the author's note says, history with all her volumes vast, hath but one page by Lord Byron. But then my, the first paragraph is, in the summer of 1990, as we packed our things, ready to go our separate ways, I said to Matthew, 20 years from now, our discoveries are really going to mean something. And I was right. I knew it then just as I know it now. The information we'd obtained would forever be bound to history's need to understand its significance. And so we knew then that we even said, we're probably never going to get this published. No one's probably going to buy our book. We're, we're two no-names. We're nobodies. Nobody wants to talk to us. But we know we have information that 20, 20, 30 years from now, 
can actually reconcile history and bring and bring some type of enlightened perspective to what occurred back then so that now you can understand what happened to Greg because it's all born right here in what occurred to Manhattan Beach. This was what was that game. like to watch Outcry? Uh, did you know that McMartin was referenced in there when you started watching it? I, I did not know until I started watching it. I wasn't surprised because every time somebody does a story on these kind of cases, they reference back okay, to McMartin. Okay, so you've seen it before. So I've seen the people reference it before, but they did a pretty good job of referencing McMartin um, briefly. And they could, because they did, they did, they did a very good job. And I'm sure, what's the director's name? Pat Candelis. I'm sure Pat Candelis looked at it. Is he from LA? No, he's from here in Austin. Okay, so I'm sure. Um, he knew enough about the case or did enough research on the case to know that you can go down a rabbit hole in the Martin. There's so much to McMartin oh, sure. that you can get caught up in the minutiae of the details. So they did a very good job of encapsulating the key to it. And really the key to it that they encapsulated, I think, in the in that segment was the interviewing techniques that they used because that's where it really started. And when I was describing to you earlier, not to get too far off topic, but what was different with the two-and-a-half-year-old child's mother who made the first accusation and the other families, all the other families went to the institute where they did the videotaped interviews with the therapist that became the foundation of the case. And that's where they manufactured a case. I read the day after Judy Johnson made this accusation, went to the police with it, the police department, the day after, the police department sends out 200 letters. It wasn't the day after. It was about three weeks after. She, the first accusation was August 12th, and on September 8th, they sent out the letter to the families. Okay. Um, and the key fact of that letter was the fact that they arrested – so they did about a three-week investigation – um, from the time the first accusation occurred. They arrested him on the 7th and sent those letters out uh, on the 8th. Okay. And they arrested That's him what? on the 7th. Right. They arrested him on the 7th for the lack of any evidence, and they never even questioned him. Wait, they arrested him for what? They arrested him. They arrested, Just based off the allegations. They, they arrested him on the allegations that Judy Johnson made about her son. And um, they released him when? They arrested him on September 7th, and they they released him that same day he was arrested. Okay. And, and they arrested him for lack of any evidence, and they never even questioned him on the day they arrested him about the child who had, who had allegedly accused him. So they just arrested him for child molestation, didn't tell him who even had accused him. And released him. And released him the same day so, so that the next day they could send a letter out to 200 families of current and former students saying – Ray because Bucky, they could have never done that had they not uh, – otherwise they'd slander libel the entire – Right. Well, in, in the letter itself, the letter says, just so I have it here, the, the letter says, this department is – this is September 8th, the next day. This department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. Ray Bucky, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, was arrested September 7th, 1983, the day before. By this department, the following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children as well as the rights of the accused, the inquiry is necessary for a complete investigation. They went on to tell them to ask How's their, that for the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, they, they, well, and they, they went on to ask them to question their children. Our, our investigation in, in, the, in the, imagine telling parents this: our investigation includes that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, Yikes. buttocks and chest area, sodomy, possibly committed under the pretense of taking a child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during an, any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child is important. So, so, so 
Um, and we, that, what, what day was that? September 8th? September 8th, the next day. It's not a good day to be Ray Bucky. No, I know. Not, not a day to be Ray Bucky. And so, um, so from there, you went through another six weeks of the, the community now of all these parents starting to ask their children what happened. Still, no kid came forward that anything had ever happened. And then in November of 83, they started taking their children to Key McFarland at Children's at CII, Children's Institute International, and they began videotaping children. Puppets and, and the so puppets on. and the, the anatomically correct dolls, Key, they yeah, call them. Key McFarland. And they went yeah. through all that. And, I mean, you could you could take Ray Bucky's name out of there and substitute anybody's. Anybody. And I think the th- same thing would have happened. Absolutely. But, and then, I well, mean, what yeah. a hell of a letter. And what was so ironic, what was so crazy about this situation was the McMartin, and it's in the book, but the McMartin Bucky family was the most heralded family in Manhattan Beach. They had received every award. They had been there for 30 years. They were the family in that. They raised Beach. a bunch of kids. They, they Yeah, we, we put the stats in there, but there was thousands and thousands of kids. One interesting thing was when Matt and I were researching the case, he, when we moved out together, that's a whole other story, when we got kicked out of the house we were living in, but, uh, but uh, he moved in with three gals that were girls that were from manhattan beach all three of them had gone to the mcmartin preschool wow and all three of them said we never saw anything happen back there we loved those people it was great so it and was, they lost but, their they, whole but they still thought ray bucky was guilty just because the, the fact that other kids sure. had, had accused him so they lost their whole business they lost their whole livelihood they lost everything because oh, they, of these accusations their, their reputations well, were never just, rebuilt yeah it was just on and on and that on that just goes to show you it doesn't matter if you think that you're insulated from this because you have a stellar reputation let me just tell you if you're a doctor if you're a dentist if you're a lawyer it doesn't matter if you're a preacher especially they're going to take everything that you've done good in your life and they're going to twist it and make it seem like you did all of that to have access to children, so on and so, so forth. So how many how many good people and how many good um, meaning people have not got involved with children or have not mentored, mentored children or have um, stayed away from that? aspect of being involved with children because they're afraid of accusations. I just had that conversation. There was two guys. Harm has this caused to our society. Look, there was two guys that, that really mentored me growing up. Three guys. Okay. It was a guy named Chris Martin, a guy named Dimitri Nichols and a guy named Rodney King. Now these, not the Rodney King you're thinking. Um, the only white Rodney King that I know. Um, but anyway, these guys, when I was a young kid, I mean, from the time that I was probably eight all the way to the time that I was probably 15 or 16, between these three guys, there it, it was one of those deals where, you know, I would go work out with Dimitri and Dimitri had uh, some daughters, but never really never had a son. And so me and my brothers would go work out and he was a firefighter. He is a firefighter still to this day. And um, everything completely above board. I mean, just the most genuine human being you can imagine. Same thing with Rodney. Rodney was more of a hunter, so he would take us hunting. And my dad was a preacher. So I think these guys, they always went to our church. They identified that there were some things that my dad um, really didn't have the time to do or couldn't do because he was serving so many other people that they really filled in in those gaps in our lives. And they would kind of rescue us from the church and take us hunting or take us to work out or just, you know, Chris was always a guy that would take me to work with him. I'd mow lawns for him and stuff like that. And so I think back, I have not returned that favor to society. And the reason that I haven't 
is because you know i got married at 19 i started having kids really young i had my own kids early and then by the time i got to a place where i could do something like that i was already involved in the greg kelly case and we just don't we there there is no way that i would ever do for other people's kids what these men did for me and that's sad but it's it's you can't afford it it's a liability that you can't afford because I think these men knew my family well enough. They knew me well enough to where they knew that I wouldn't become a vindictive teenager or something like that and create a false allegation. But these men also instilled discipline in my life. And I can't, I just, I mean, that wasn't that long ago. I mean, we're talking in the nineties and to think that, you know, I, I, and I was talking to Dimitri the other day and I said, do you realize that what you did for me is probably one of the most dangerous things you could ever. And I'm so thankful that you did. But that's probably one of the most dangerous things you could ever do uh, in your lifetime is take somebody else's kid under your wing and mentor them and and those kind of things. And it's just it's sad. But, hey, if you're watching this, that's the deal now. You can't be you really can't be doing that because you got to be careful. You got to be careful going into a bathroom when there's just you and a kid. Uh, I mean, honestly, uh, I'll turn around and walk the other way just because you well, don't want that allegation. And, and that's one of the things that that we've always said was that this case, the McMartin case, changed society. Not to keep reading for you, but you just touched on something that is, again, it's in, it's in the prologue. And we said this, and we said, from a historical perspective, it's difficult to compare this occurrence to other episodes in our nation's past. Many have called it the modern-day Salem Witch Trials. But even that doesn't reflect the unique wickedness of what took place in Manhattan Beach. For the tragedies of 1692, Salem, were, if anything, profoundly contemporary. That was normal then. In this event, the heart of the 1980s, with its advanced learning and social correctness, good people, proud intellectuals, fell prey to their deepest fears. They went mad. Today, three decades after the passion subsided, most have moved on. Still, their anger, their wrath, changed American society forever. It changed how we interact with our children, the careful use of our words, and the cold distance of our touch. Yes, the rage has dissipated, but the hysteria lives on, patiently surveying the landscape. And we're writing about hysteria as an entity that is always going to be there. And it's always going to capitalize and pounce upon the opportunity where society is susceptible to its hysteria. But we don't hold and hug and express our love towards children the way we used to feel comfortable doing in a normal society because we're jaded and we're afraid and we're scared and we have this cold, We've seen one too many headlines this cold separation of now my kids yeah i hug and i might kiss my kids but you know if they, if they had their friend over you know you, 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 don't, you don't hug it's a friend. high five yeah. or a fist bump I mean, yeah, <laughs> COVID elbow or something there, you know but yeah so no it's it's um it's um it's too bad, but it's the reality now, and it's just not worth the risk of. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it, but it is sad that we've been sterilized now, l- literally and figuratively, as a society, to be to be distanced. And I, I guarantee you, we probably have friends. Uh, my daughters probably have friends that probably think that we're a little weird because when they have sleepovers, I'm not there. Right. I, I, I'm in another city. I'm I'm not I'm there. Right. My, my mom comes over, my wife hosts, and my sister typically. It's normally the three of them that host those sleepovers together because I'm just not I'm, – I'm not doing it. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to put myself in a position where a 12-year-old kid right. can, 
can dictate make, your future. Yes, man. It's just can you make sure you're on a security camera in some city somewhere? It's like document where I'm at. I'm just a hell away from there. So you know? so I watched the um the about it's about an hour and twenty minute documentary on oxygen um today, and one of the things that just jumped on, out on at McMartin me, on McMartin. Okay, and I see, uh, I seen it. So it it grabbed me. One of the things that just jumped out and grabbed me is people will adopt a mantra and they'll grab that mantra and they'll just hammer it into the ground right. and they'll, they'll base all their decisions and everything that they, uh, every direction they go based on that mantra. And it, I was just struck because I saw people walking with signs that said, we believe the children. Right. And that was the mantra. Right. We believe the children. All of those people in that show who you saw interviewed, are in this book and people that I interviewed 35 years ago. That same mantra was used against us five years ago, right. four years ago, three years ago. Um, we believe the children. And right. it would, it was, it was a mantra that was um, like a, it was like a sword that cut us because it was as if we didn't believe children or that we, we were victimizing children by not believing them. Well, it's adults using children as a shield to hide their own false case and their lack of evidence. That's and, exactly, and, and they're, they're, that's they're, they're exactly what, that's exactly what yeah. we I have experienced. A, uh, I don't know if I should go here or not. But go I'm there. <laughs> do it. Hey, this is why they call me the mouth of the South. <laughs> uh, I have a special relationship with... Um, some victims' rights groups, meaning uh, they really hate my guts. And the reason that they hate my guts is because they viewed it very binary. You either believe the kids or you believe Greg. Or you're a monster. What they, <laughs> or you're a monster. What they didn't understand was that to truly believe the kids, uh, you, needed to, you needed to investigate the case. You needed to look and see, we believe the kids too. I totally believed that something happened to these kids. Right. But I also knew that there was forces involved, like the daycare owner that had unfettered access to these kids and her sons that were much more likely candidates based off of what we knew about them, that more than just believing them, if you care about what happened to them. And the way that I view victims' rights people I guess my respect level for them is about the same as my respect level for chemotherapy. And here's what I mean by that. Um, chemo has a purpose and it is focused on killing cells. Cancer cells is what it's designed to do. But chemo gets so aggressive sometimes that it can kill good things too. Right. And so it doesn't mean that chemo is bad. I think that these victims rights group, and I don't mean this as a slight to them. I think they have to be careful though, because look, in this case, the cancer is pedophilia. And I think that everybody agrees that that needs to be killed. That needs to be stamped from our society. We need to um, find it as quick as we can. We need to treat it as early as possible. And we need to try to remove it from our society. But like chemotherapy, if you're not very careful, you're going to kill a lot of very healthy cells. But by the nature of what you're saying, the, even the term victim's rights group has no place in the legal process. A victim's rights group should be post-verdict once you've determined that there is an actual victim. You, when you say the, an, an, an accuser, the outcrier that you're saying 
from from the case, uh, an, an alleged victim is an alleged victim. But when you say a, if you're labeling them as a victim before there's been due process to determine if the culprit, the person they're accusing, is actually guilty, then you can't really call them a victim yet. Right. And that's difficult and in, to do. And in our case, it, it was right. all post-conviction. And maybe that's why they have a special right. place in their heart for right. me. But but our deal was challenging that that was the accurate outcome. I mean, to me, if you look at a, you know, we, we were one of the most contested moments in that fight was when we asked for a hearing to provide proof of Greg Kelly's innocence. Right. Um, that would be a great time for both the victims rights people and the state to go, okay, hang on. These guys are asking for a hearing to provide proof of Greg Kelly's innocence. If they're bluffing, if they're lying, if Keith Hampton signed this affidavit uh, as an officer of the court and is manufacturing this claim and it's not valid, he's in big trouble. And this would be an opportune time to shut this down like a cheap circus because they could. All they had to do was allow us to have the hearing and then see that we have no proof. And then, boom, we're gone. This deal's done. We have nothing. They've called our hand. We've, we were bluffing and we have a two and a seven, right? And so, but the reason they fought us so vigorously at that moment was because they didn't care about the victims. They, right. Well, I, I don't even know if it's that. I think that they have the hatred for the crime so much that they were they're so entrenched. They were so focused on their hatred of pedophilia became a hatred for Greg when, Kelly. When you say they, who are you talking about? These victims rights groups, just okay. various ones. Okay. There was a few, a few people don't even name them. Yeah, give them right. Don't even give them. The, yeah, uh, no, I, I wouldn't. Um, but what it was, was, and that's why, like I said, I, I, I view them like I view chemotherapy and that's probably giving them a lot of credit because I think in their heart and I always try to view things from the other, other side of the table in their heart, they have become consumed with a hatred of pedophilia and they hate it. And they hate it so much that even if you even get falsely accused of something, I think in their mind, they would rather you just take one for the team here and go die in a hole somewhere it's, than, it's misguided, than it's, fight it. It's misguided energy. I mean, look, yeah. at this case occurred in the 1980s, right? This is the biggest case of all time. So much focus on child molestation, so much focus on pedophilia. So while they were locking up all of these innocent directors and teachers at preschools, they turn their blind eye and watch the Catholic Church molest thousands Bingo. of kids for 20, 30 more years. Right. So it's it's it, it was they built all, a task force they, that never they, right. They did they did nothing. They they allowed it to go on, and so and they knew it was happening, and they turned their blind eye because the Catholic Church was and I'm Catholic, but the Catholic Church was too powerful to to mess with, and so they they you know the the crime still occurs. It's yeah. all over the place, but. The but it 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 does a real disservice to society and to the children involved when you um, when you program them and put them in therapy to receive treatment for abuses that have never occurred to them for years. And I and recently years and just years. received a call from one of the former Martin students who's now a forty three year old man. Uh, he basically said after 35 years of being in psychotherapy, I came to the conclusion that this whole thing is bullshit. And he says, and the biggest, the hardest part of this for me, for him, 
is my parents because they were very involved as activists, thinking they were protecting us they from were all the abuse. Sure. They were it was this group think mentality of hundreds of people being told by experts and the district attorney that this all happened. And so he so, feels like he's hurting them by, by and not to interrupt you, but I do want to also point out that not all victims' rights groups are the same. In fact, believe it or not, and this was one of the most shocking calls that I've gotten, I was reached out to uh, by a guy that's running a a really cool program, and it's called PACT. It's Partners Against Child Trafficking. Have you guys heard of that? I have not. So here's their deal. And this is why, you know, he watched Outcry, and he reached out to me which that is actually the first time that's ever happened is somebody that's that's against child trafficking you might call them a victim's rights group reached out to me and I said man I've got to ask you because I feel like I might be be getting set up here because there's been so much hatred towards me for standing up for somebody that was convicted of super aggravated sexual assault of a minor I said yeah. why are you calling me and he said, because I can tell that you're somebody that's, that's going against the grain. And he said, you know, um, the way that I am attempting to solve this problem, you know, there's a lot of child advocacy groups. There's a lot of victims' rights groups that try to solve the problem once a victim has been created. And the way that I'm trying to solve the problem is through peer-to-peer -peer education to, to keep this vulnerable segment of the American society. And there's, they've done the math and I'm not trying to quote the way, you know, if, if you want to check that out, check out PACT, um, P-A-C-T, but they've done the research. And what they're telling me is that they've identified a group of, not a group, but a kind of a segment of children that are most vulnerable uh, to child trafficking. And I can help you out with this if yeah. you want. With yeah, my please, background on my folks. When my folks were first starting to deal with the topic back in the late 70s, they were educating, trying to educate, educate children. They even had a little, a little coloring book they did called What If I Say No? And it was trying to teach children through a very reasonable little coloring book what the difference between good touching and bad touching was, meaning a hug is a good touch. Touching you on your right. privates is a bad touch. Right. And it was a way just to teach children that what if I say no? Because at the time, if a child was going to about to be a victim of a pedophile or a child molester, it was normally somebody they knew and somebody in their family. And if a child would just say, no, don't touch me that way, the, the abuser would go away because they didn't want to get caught. Right. So it was educating children the difference between good and bad and giving children the power to know. Now, where you're dealing with a violent perpetrator who's going to murder them and kidnap them and traffic them, and that's a different kind of story. But the vast majority of either incest or – this isn't the greatest topic to talk about, but right. this is sure. educating children because pedophiles, the same way you would seduce a girl that becomes your wife or you take her out on a date and you try to get to know her and seduce her and – Sexual relations becomes a part of that at some point, but the relationship is much broader than that. Right. The same thing pedophiles do to these wayward children whose parents aren't paying attention to them, who aren't giving them the attention and love they need. So that's, that's what he's they... keyed in on. He's realized, and that, and that what I really thought was cool about the way that they're approaching solving the problem. And I told him, I said, you know, very few people view problem solving this way, which is why, hey, I'm, I'm in it for a penny. I'm in it for a pound. Let's work together on this. And 
I cannot believe you want me to actually speak at your event, but I'm, I'm honored to do so because, hey, I am, I want to stop child trafficking. I want to stop, you know, any, anything that I can help, you know, use whatever little platform I have to try to, to try to help the situation. Look, I'm a father of three. I I don't want this in our society, but I also know it doesn't do a damn bit of good to villainize people that may or may not have been a part of it. And so what they do is they empower young leaders. Basically they're giving teenagers or, you know, middle school students, Hey, here's, here's your platform. Here's, here's a way that you can advocate and potentially save people that you identify in your school. We're not going to come in and tell you who the the kids are that are most likely, but we're going to educate you on, on the signs. And it's typically the, the, the little girl that's walking through, uh, school with her head down like this and and craving attention pedophiles target those kids right. and so hey we're going to teach the kids that walk around like this you know and are just full of life to be able to to reach out and teach them and give them some of that attention that they need peer to peer so that they're not in a place where they're as vulnerable and educating from kid to kid which i thought was amazing because a lot of times you know, it's, we have to know as parents, my wife has done an incredible job, I think, trying to limit our kids' technology exposure and things. And she, my kids call her the, the cell phone Nazi, but she's, you know, hell, she caught our daughter the other day texting who she thought was Santa and asking for a hoverboard. And he's asking her if she's bored, you know? So it's just like, right. what in the world is going on with this thing? And so I love the way that he's attempting to solve the problem, but you would never guess who's attacking him the most right now. Cause I asked him, I said, you know, partnering with me is going to open you up for all kinds of attacks. And he said, brother, they're already, they're already attacking me. They're already at my door. They're already attacking me, which is why, you know, hey, I, I want to partner with a guy like you because you will stand up and you will fight back. And we need somebody like that because I saw what you did in Greg's Kelly case and you went against the grain. He said, but but you know who's attacking me? It's these victims rights groups. Because my approach to solve the problem is to. To keep people from becoming victims. And they're going to try to tell you that I'm victim shaming or that I'm, you know, making it seem like it's the kid's fault when I'm not doing that. I'm just saying these are the types of kids that typically get trafficked and they've done all the scientific studies on that. They can tell you these kids. It's not like kids like mine. And I don't mean that in a in a condescending way towards kids that are more, you know, stick to themselves. But but kids like mine aren't just getting nabbed out of, you know, the, their parents' hands when right. they're at their soccer game. Right. It, that's not what's happening. What's happening is these kids that feel a little bit rejected, they start to hang out on the fringe. They start to develop their online life more so than their social life. And then they start to get that attention. And then there's some predators mixed in yeah. into the weeds there. And they start to single these kids out. And most of these kids that get trafficked, most of them, and not all of them, but Volunteers. most of them don't even realize that they're that they're volunteering for it yeah. and, and that's going to be a controversial way to say that but if you if you're watching this and you're and, and and you can't see my heart then you shouldn't probably be watching this show because here's what we're trying to tell you is that it's not that they're volunteering to be trafficked they're volunteering to meet up with these people they're volunteering to start an online relationship where they're getting some sort of validation from these people and so 
these guys don't have to go break into their home and steal them. And I'm sure that that happens some of the time, but the majority of them have actually walked into that unknowingly and, and then it's too late. Once right. they have you, you're gone. Right. And a vast majority of these kids that get trafficked all over the world come from the United States and walk right into that buzzsaw and don't even know they're doing it. And the fact that he's getting all kinds of pushback from victims' rights groups because, hey, and I'm you know, i not going to necessarily make the claim that you know, I said this to him on the phone, but I, I don't know if this is probably the best way to say this, but hey, well, you're limiting the supply. You know, the, the, the uh, Child Protective Services get $6.6 billion a year for child trafficking. And all they're doing, not all they're doing, but mo- the majority of what they're doing is building $7 million facilities like they just built uh, here in town um, to deal with like 60 actual victims that, hey, by the way, have already been victimized. Right. If you could take $7 million and pump it into an organization that prevents that, but do they really want to solve the problem? Or are we we still on the chemo model, right, that says, hey, we would rather just attack, we would rather just attack the cancer when we find it, regardless of what that does to society versus trying to prevent it? Interesting. Sure. Take. I don't take. know, man. It's it's interesting, and it's something that I'm gonna I'm gonna walk down that path because just like the way that I feel about you know we can solve this problem of of black men getting killed by cops if we can focus on the root cause, which is people resisting arrest, and then if people get killed by cops, black, white, or any other color. Uh, then we can isolate the problem to one racist individual or one, you know, murderous individual that we can deal with. But we have we, we've got to approach the problem uh, at the point of origin and we got to try to stop it if we really want to solve it. But if we just want to whip up these hysterias and have everybody go nuts every four years, we, we keep we keep losing sight of due process. Yeah. Either way. Like right. I, I, I never like seeing anybody who doesn't have a gun be shot by somebody with a gun in the right. back and that person because the person who like the case of Jacob Blake you know regardless of what he did maybe he was accused of rape maybe he did resist arrest maybe he reached for a knife but you can't you got to find a way to get him to the police station without shooting him in the back eight times right regardless of what he did because that's not due process right and then once the cop who does shoot him eight times in the back sure he deserves due process right because because that's how the system works that's how it needs everybody to work. gets their due process yeah. And I watch those, you know, I watch all of that. And I've also seen the videos where the cop probably does let it go a little farther than he was trained to. And all of a sudden the guy pulls a gun out of his sock and just wastes the cop. And so, you know, that, I mean, I just watched one the other day where this guy in a suit, you know, didn't look like somebody that was going to shoot a cop. You know, just is like reaches out behind his back and pulls the and just wastes this cop and the cop dies. And you're like, man, I never saw a point where I feel like deadly force would have been justified. Right. But the guy was disobedient to orders. He did resist arrest. He tried to smooth talk his way out of it by mentioning all these names of mayors and other right. people. But it never got to a place where I could be like, okay, justifiable force is used. And so that's why for me, the moment that a police officer tells you something, 
Yeah. That's the time to just comply. And like that lady that got tased at the football game for not wearing a mask. I'm not a big fan of being forced to wear a mask, but I'm also not a fan of resisting arrest. And so for me, for her, anything that happened after the point of resisting, that's on her. Cop tased her. Yeah, wasn't probably what I would have done. Right. But she resisted arrest. And that's where she could have kept that. But the problem too is is all these stories are being bundled together with with general themes when each case needs to be looked at individually. Right. The same way Greg's case needs to be looked different than the McMartin case. How big of a force multiplier do you think these things are for mass hysteria? I think I think what we're dealing with now is we're dealing with that 24-hour news cycle to where where the McMartin case was a case that stayed in the news for so long. Now, these stories just come and go now. It's like, it's like every day. No, but imagine if there was yeah, social say. media during the McMartin case. It would have been across the United States. It felt like hours. a big story then, but what do you think it would have been like with have, this as a multiplier? You would have had around the world. Uh, it would this have, is it, the Powerball. <laughs> and it probably would have created. But even, do, you think, do you think possibly that that many eyes in that? That type of exposure would have actually um, might have diluted it, diluted it the have. diluted the hysteria, and and yeah. made I don't think you would have ever at, got an acquittal. Well, the, the, well, from the outside, it's hard to say. Yeah, it's, I'm talking about from the outside. Yeah, I, forces from the outside going. Are we, are we really going to? Okay, so for instance, there was a DA, right, in what '87 that left the DA's office. You talking about McMartin? Yes. So with McMartin, what happened was the indictments occurred in March of 1984. Um, John Vandekamp was the was the district attorney of Los Angeles the year prior to that. He left the office, in, I think, in eighty two or eighty three. It might have been eighty two. He was elected attorney general. He was he was he went from L, uh, Los Angeles district attorney to attorney general of California. He had a vacant seat, and there was a governor Duke Magin. There was the city council of Los Angeles. They uh, they appointed a guy named Robert Philobosian. To be the, the the sitting district attorney until they had a special election in June of '84. So when they indicted the Martin Buckies in March of '84, Philobosian was looking to gain gain some because he was running against a very popularly a popularly elected city attorney named Ira Reiner, and Ira Reiner was was already an elected official and he was leading in the polls. So Phil Abosian really went out and grandstanded and like at an indictment, you know, whenever you see the actual elected DA at the at the council table and making statements, I mean, you got you got deputy deputy DAs that do that. You don't need yeah. to be there at that. He really stood on the counter. We found out later that back in September, six months prior, he had actually hired consultants that did research for him, that, you know. Uh, that told him you need to be involved in a high profile and you need child abuse also, case, and you also need yeah. to um, uh, serve, bring those cameras along on serving those warrants, right. and you need to right. be in the public eye, yeah. and so on. He, and so he, he, instead of having somebody just come in and surrender because of the charges, uh, they denied that that person come in, and right. then they showed up at the house with the cameras right. and arrested him with the cameras on. They, they, used so, it, they used it for a political game. So what I was referencing, though, is there was an assistant DA involved in this case that backed out. and You're, you're and, talking about Glenn Stevens. Glenn Stevens. Yeah, so yeah. Glenn Stevens was like the modern day, um, in our time it was Sean Dick, that was looking at the facts of the case and saying, oh, well, there may be more going on here or there may be something else happening. 
Right. Um, and he ended up leaving. What he what he did, unfortunately, what he did, which hurt his credibility. And I think he was he was I think had he not done what he did, I think it would have it would the, the case might have been closer to getting an, an, uh, a conviction. So he helped the case in the long run from what he did, because it, it was it was credible in general that it that somebody on the prosecution actually left the case. But the problem of what he did was he he leaked to the press, first of all. The infer- his his convictions. So he sat down with the reporter from the L.A. Times and the Daily Breeze, which is a South Bay, California newspaper, and told them that he was having reservations about the case and that he didn't believe that he believed that all of the defendants were probably innocent. And then he and went, this was very early on in the case, right? Th- this was in in, the midst. this was in '85. This, this this was this was this was during the preliminary hearing. So he actually went to the press, leaked his misgivings. Um, didn't voice his concerns to his bosses at the district attorney. His direct boss at the time was Gil Garcetti, who's the father of Eric Garcetti, who's now the mayor of L.A. This was Gil Garcetti. And Gil Garcetti was the DA of L.A. during O.J. So that's how this kind of okay. progresses. So he didn't voice his, his concerns to Gil Garcetti. He leaked to the press. Then when it finally got around, they realized it was him who did it. He left the DA's office, but he had already recorded a you know, 30 hours of recordings with a, a screenwriter named Abby Mann, who is an Academy Award winning screenwriter who did, did, who, did, who did the Judgment of Nuremberg. He did the Atlanta Child Murders. That ended up uh, Oliver Stone's. That ended up being the movie Indictment with James Woods and that was a Golden Globe Award winning, Emmy Award winning um, uh, movie, that was, that HBO was, movie. That was the foundation. That was the foundation, that, yeah. that, that, which came out in 95. So five years after the trial ended, they came out with that. We tracked the case. We followed her story. We became very close with her father and her brother and her best friend. They gave us a ton of taped interviews that we have still on audio tape. But the biggest catch was her father gave us a hefty bag full of all of her notes and diaries. And through her notes and diaries, we were able to trace her because she was a paranoid schizophrenic. And that's in the book. That's in the book. In In the end of the book, we solve the mystery to what led her to make the false accusations to kick off this entire thing. That's that really is. I mean, I'm not tooting on horn, but to think that wow. 35 years after the longest, most expensive criminal case in U.S. history ended, two nobodies, two, two college kids actually solved the case with information that wasn't allowed to be in, uh, uh, admissible to the court. We actually solved. Sounds that. familiar, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, you know. Look, hey, you're a fighter. And I don't know if that's even why you went down this track, but we, we use that term to describe people that were willing to, to join the fight against uh, this deal with Greg Kelly. And I get people all the time that ask me, Hey, man, I'm not like you. Like, I don't, I can't talk like that. And I'm not willing to say some of those things, but they fight in their own special way. And, And I look at your giftings. They're very different from mine, but man, you you spent thirty years, and what were you right. fight? What actually were you fighting? Well, I think what well, are you fighting? Because th- you're still fighting, right? I, I think at the time when we first got involved, all of society said they were guilty, and we had a, a pretty good inclination that they weren't guilty. And we and this is again another generation. Like this is back in the eighties. Back then, when you read the newspaper, man, that shit was real. Right. There was no fake news. No this it, when it was it was in the freaking paper. This was fact. That's how it worked for us. Yeah. So we and we were we were political science majors, and I was a history, sorry history minor, and so you know we were getting microfiche 
to pull up articles and that LexisNexis, you know, dot matrix, perforated sheets, old school printers. So we were doing real old school, like this kind of investigation we did. You wouldn't see that again. Everything, oh, no. everything right. could be Googled. online. Yeah, yeah it's all sure. So th this was like the, the kind of the last of its. And it was degree. harder then. Right. And we and we were looking at it like, you know, we were kind of like, you know, excuse my friends, but we were kind of like, where the fuck's Woodward and Bernstein? Right. Like, you know, this yeah. is this is, you know, 12 years after Watergate. We're like. Where are where are those journalists that are getting asking the tough questions about this can't be real this is, and then the more we look into it we're like this is crazy and we're like why are we these two college kids the ones asking this question so we were just kind of like we got to go see what's going on here because this is and then, and then I remember Matt came to me and he goes dude he called me I was in Bakersfield up in the central San Joaquin Valley of California and it's a bunch of grape fields and farmland that's kind of where I'm from it's kind of like Texas in California. And I was driving a forklift doing, you know, processing, you know, red seedless table grapes. And he called me one night and he's like, dude, he's like, do you know about all the other cases? I'm like, what other cases? He's like, all the other cases. I'm like, what do you mean other cases? He goes, dude, there's way more to the story. He's like, we're talking about McMartin. He's like, there's eight other preschools that got shut down up there because they oh were accused gosh. of being part of a satanic pornography. How many ring. of them got? Acquitted versus convicted. Well, um, only the the only the Michael Ruby case was the seventeen year old kid that I like, compared to the Greg Kelly case was the one that actually went to a criminal trial. The other ones were all people getting together doing civil suits, just getting people to pay them money, yeah. putting their kids. But all the kids went to the same therapy. It's a real convoluted story, but you know. Um, therapist is cashing in on just it. Cashing in. Oh, and the therapist, the CII, was getting money for every kid that they got to do a disclosure. So it was just a big money cycle and it was really disgusting amazing? how it worked but in general we just we just got so deeply involved that one of the funny lines that you know when we still when we decided to move to california because matt's parents he was from downey which is really on the edge of la it's it's 15 20 minutes from downtown from the courthouse and so his parents let us move into their house we took the garage we, we converted it into our war room that's how we worked and our friends kept going you know because we were like fraternity brothers and all this and and our friends were like, oh, what are you guys doing? And they were like, oh, they were like, why are you following this case? And they're like, they're, they're like, are you guys gay? Are you guys gay? And, <laughs> and, and then we would describe them and we'd be like, oh, oh you're we, 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 we'd tell them the whole story. How interesting it was. They'd be like, oh, they, 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 like their jaws would drop. They'd be like, oh, oh my God, that story's amazing. And then they'd be like, oh, we're still going to tell people you're gay. Yeah. Like, of course. <laughs> like, that's what friends do, right? You right. know, it's. I feel I feel honored just to be in your presence because I was feeling like I did something here, but I had this phone and all I really ever had to do was was make a selfie video or make some kind of post or right. and, and and it just made it it made it a dynamically scalable fight, right. right? We could we could grow our numbers very quickly. You had to do it old school. And I I, I remember I got my pilot's license about ten to eight years ago and um I remember learning how the old pilots had to do it and they basically taught us all that stuff, but they were like, yeah, but now you can just use your iPad. Right. right. And I remember thinking, man, I wouldn't be a pilot if we didn't just have the right. iPad because this part is terrible. Well, I'll say this. This is kind of a combination where old school meets new school because we had file cabinets full of documents. We had her hefty bag with all of her notes and diaries and her calendars that we used to trace back her schizophrenic pattern leading up to her accusation. We had just volumes of information. He called me in February of 2014 and said, dude, I hadn't talked to Matt in 10 years. And he was like, dude, we got to get this book written. Um, and for years, we'd always talked about, you know, ghost writers or somebody coming in and write it. And he goes, but dude, you got to write, you got to write it. And I was like, okay, I'll write. I can write. I know I can write it. Cause I was a writer. I, I knew I could write. I said, okay, I'll write it. 
between February of of and he Matt had done an amazing job of archiving everything. I mean, we had hundreds of interviews all digitized on MP3. Everything just he had a matrix of just information. It was amazing what he had, and from February of 2014 until November of 2014, that's when that 218,000 word book was written, which was which was under the working title "The Last Crucible" because we considered it the last prominent crucible. That didn't pull too well with our focus groups because they were kind of like sounds too much like the Crusades. Or I something. love this this right, right here because the title. The title does it all, right? right? And it and it's so. I, I love the way that in your your note or what, what was that that you read? It Full was word. A, the author's note of the, the author's note, right? right? I love that in your note. You know, this thing is. If we don't change it, then it then it becomes almost like a prophecy because. And you saw that, and right. you and I mean I don't know how long ago you wrote that, but two years ago. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wrote. I probably wrote that line. Um, following you know we published this two years ago i probably wrote that line maybe a little bit before that because i was probably talking about people being beheaded by isis and then the, the ferguson thing with the michael brown killing and when everybody sure. ran through the city of ferguson just burnt down the town over a false narrative that the false narrative that a hands that, up don't shoot that that, that that a young black man was assassinated in broad daylight sure. by a cop when when Eric Holder found out later that didn't happen that, that way. Didn't That's happen. not what happened. Yeah. It was a false narrative. It doesn't mean that there's not injustice. It doesn't mean that there's not a very unique story of African Americans in America where where we have to deal with the with the 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 nature of our history that's been unfair. Sure. But that narrative wasn't true. And right. it results in innocent people having their businesses burned down. What I was saying about the old school, new school was so that two hundred eighteen thousand word last crucible was ended up being edited into they must be monsters hundred and ten thousand words over about a three and a half year period just editing what I wrote in nine months. This took three and a half years to edit it into the new school part was having Google at my fingertips and the sure. online cable enabled me to look up like you know March twelfth nineteen eighty five what was the weather like on that day. And I was able to pull up so much information that this is written like a novel. This is this is like a narrative nonfiction. If you've been reading it, you know I, it reads kind of like a novel. It's, yeah. Uh, but it's but it's narrative nonfiction, so it enabled me to bring it to life. If you're watching this and you don't personally care about the McMartin case, let me tell you why you need to read this book. The reason you need to read this book is because if we're not careful, we're going to continue to repeat and we're doing it right now and it drives me stinking crazy but this mass hysteria thing it, you gotta know that you're part of the problem i don't care who you are you are part of the problem if you're on the right you're part of the problem because you're worried about everybody on the what the antifa is going to do and if you're on the left you're part of the problem because you're worried about what the white supremacists are going to do you are being played because le like we've talked about in this case and this case is just a microcosm of the actual problem and that problem is that people are going to profit from that hysteria it creates opportunities that otherwise wouldn't have existed mm -hmm. and so if you can forecast that and you can say hey we can create this hysteria around this thing and then be the one selling the mask or be the, you know what I'm we're, saying? We're doing the hysteria right now with COVID. Sure. I mean, you, when you look at the raw, and I don't want to get into a political discussion, right. but you look at the raw numbers. It's funny that that's and, even and, considered a political and, discussion. And, and, and they, right, right. But, but, but they tell you, well, there's 7 million cases. Well, there's not 7 million cases. They've tested 
they've 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 tested seventy or eighty million people, and they've come up with seven million cases. Meaning, one in ten people that they test have COVID. Meaning, meaning ten percent of and, the population and, has COVID. Meaning, thirty-three million people are likely to have COVID right now, and most of them don't even know it. Those those are projected numbers. And, but the reality is, the real number is the number of deaths. 200,000, so, right. So if, but, so, so if 33 million people have it and 200,000 have died, then one-third of 1% 1 of people who get this would die. And then when you break down the demographics of the people that actually have died, 75% of those are above the age of 70. So we're living, we're being controlled by now by the hysteria of telling us that something that really isn't as deadly as they're making it, it's not saying it's not serious. Right, it's serious. But, but it's nothing to shut your entire uh, right. That I'm walking around the airport now with a mask on my face, and I'm living in fear, and I'm seeing people. Somebody got shot in the news the other day. They, they showed they they killed a guy in a store because he wouldn't put a mask on. Oh well, two hundred that two hundred thousand number, not to back up too far, but that two hundred thousand uh, two hundred thousand number. That's ignoring um, when's the last time somebody died of old age. When's the last some when's the last time somebody died of the flu. When's the last somebody did. Died of even 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 if you take even if you take the number at face value and say okay it's been two hundred ten thousand people have died it's you're still, still minuscule because because if you're saying you've sampled seventy to eighty million that's twenty five percent of the population that is a even if there's some redundancy in in those tests that's a huge statistically if you've studied statistics to think that you've actually tested twenty five percent of uh, they don't when they do polls for who's winning an election. They're taking the, uh, right, and, and what you've it's, tested is actually people that volunteered right. for the test because right. they were feeling ill or they, right. they had some right. sort of symptoms. If, so if, if, if everybody got tested right now, they would probably be telling you that if everybody was, we'd probably have about thirty-five million people probably have been walking around most asymptomatic with this virus. Right, and I'm in that industry. I mean, I, my 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 day job is designing and building sterile environments for clean rooms and pharmaceuticals and hospital and healthcare. So we deal with it daily and we see what the industry is going through and they are very misguided on how they're dealing with it. And so there's actually a market for build, building clean and sterile environments. Oh yeah. That's what, that's what Why I do. don't they just make y'all wear the mask when you walk into the room? Doesn't that keep it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to get it. Look, I'm not trying to polarize this segment. What here's what I'm trying to point out. It doesn't matter what the catalyst is for right. whipping up mass hysteria, whether you agree with uh, our assessment of that particular issue or not one way or the other, the bottom line is you are being used and manipulated right. uh, for a profit. And I can promise you, I, I remember something uh, from that social media documentary that Dilemma, came out. Yeah. 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 Did you see that one on, on, oh, the, on Netflix? Is that Netflix? Dude, yeah. yeah, it was on Netflix. And <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like the docudrama where they dramatize it, but then they show you the all the leaders of the ex-guys of Twitter. and Oh, it, yeah. It's on, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's frightening. Yeah. And I think I'm misquoting this, but he said something along the lines of, if you can't figure out the product they're selling, you are the product or yeah, something, right. like something like that. Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh, if there's no product, you are the product. I right. mean, they're selling you, man. They're trying to get you whipped up. Well, what did you ask me earlier, Jake? You asked me about terrorism. Where did terrorism go? Yeah. They was the, it was the, Terrorism was everything we were talking about three, five, right. ten years ago. Right. Where's terrorism? Well, COVID was all we talked about about three months ago, and then you had the George Floyd thing, and then all of a sudden sure. nobody talked about COVID. They were doing and then it came about back. It. Now it's down. It's just it's just and they're now. selling you something every day. Yeah. But they're showing you on on a frame, and that's that's what they did with Martin. That's what they did with Greg Kelly. 
they're showing you a frame what they want you to think and how they want to direct your thought process but they're not really showing you outside of that frame the truth around that picture it's, it's and the picture is always it's one dimensional right. it's a one dimensional right. picture right and i'm not a big fan of just stating problems without stating solutions right, right. so how do we you know as as typical just lay people and i consider myself that how do we guard ourselves from being i mean i'm going to be honest if i got a letter from my kids from the marble falls police department about a teacher in my school if i got a letter like that we're going to have some problems right. yeah, <laughs> i'm going to exactly. be at the school right so it's easy to sit back now and be like oh y'all were all had but you've studied this way more than i have right. you've studied this probably more than any other human being i think that's safe to say how do we keep from getting into that trap? Because I look at every case that I've been involved in, I can always see the other side of the table. I can always see how they went down that road. I can see how they were had. And I look at this and I just go, man, it's so immense. How do we keep from falling into that trap? I, I, I wish I had the answer to that because the reality of it is once you get a child involved and the, you, you're saying that a child is making a statement. It's emotional. And, 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 and right. And, and, if the, and these, these clinicians and these experts have even created it to where you can say, even if what the child says isn't totally accurate and is, and is, seems fantasy. We're going to believe 50% of what they're saying. Right, because they just, they just forget things. And so it's difficult because you've got too many people in law enforcement and in, in the prosecutorial side and in the clinical side whose whose industry it is to manufacture these kinds of cases and all the McMartin showed as you saw in the Kelly case is they, they just now have a better footprint of how to actually process it and manufacture it they weed off all the fat McMartin was full of fat that they were they were picking apart which was why it took so long and why they got acquitted in the Kelly case I could see just watch the documentary they had this thing that, that thing cookie cut here it is. There's the accusation. No more information. We're going to lose these emails. We'll lose this. We'll take care of that. Here right. we are. Now this is all that it is. And then you, you force a jury to basically say, are we going to say these kids are this kid's lying? lying. And, and, and hey, let's be clear. We're not saying that this doesn't happen. We are not saying that there's not actual monsters out there doing this. And one of my biggest fears in doing a segment like this is that somehow this pedophile is going to benefit from the work that we're doing. Well, I'll be honest with you. I asked you when we spoke on the phone before I came down um, about the initial accusation because I didn't see enough of the documentary that got into the family and the parents and the nature of that first accusation. Sure. When you described to me how that first accus accusation came about, it changed my opinion of, wait a second, maybe this, I think this kid probably was abused by somebody. Yeah, I, I, uh, I definitely believe that. Right, and, and because I got to know a little bit more about the, about the backdrop. Um, I think what I've learned from what I know of this case and certainly the Greg Kelly case is that if you're a parent watching this or ever plan on becoming a parent, if your child organically ever comes to you and makes statements that cause you to have concern, um, you have to keep in mind that your child may be the only evidence that exists in that case. And so... Just like if you found a gun at the scene of a murder crime, you know the first rule is don't touch it. Don't touch it. Don't talk to your kid. 
don't try to get more details. I know you're concerned. I know you're panicked, but there are people post McMartin that have been very well trained. And if you look at the Greg Kelly case, I think the CAC worker knew better than to let that detective do what he was going to do. And Hey, here's the next thing. Get them to a trained psychologist. Don't necessarily make the police be your first call unless that child has made an accusation forthright this person did this to me and in that case then you absolutely need to report that to the right authority but if it's just something that causes you to have a concern you need to get them to a trained child psychologist and you need to let that psychologist know hey here's what my kids told me I believe that they may be evidence to a crime and I want you, where should I go? Who should I talk to that can forensically examine my child, both through talking and through whatever examinations may, may be, but whatever you do, don't touch it because you don't know enough about and, it. And you, to see, even you go have there. to make sure that the, that whoever's going to interview or speak to the child is does trained. It, and, and train and, and train to not do it in a leading and suggestive way right. where they offer kids information where the kids just repeating or affirming what they've been told. It, it, you said the word organically and that's yeah. the key. And, and that's, and I just don't know enough about the current state of the clinical field to know if they're doing it properly or not. It didn't seem by the Kelly case that they were. I've been contacted by several high ups in different law law enforcement agencies and they all watched that deal with Chris Daly and they were horrified. They said, we know better. This is 10 years old. Like we, for the last 10 years, we've been trained better than this. He only came into the room after he wasn't getting the answers. that he Right. My assumption is, and I I could be right, I could be wrong, but that since McMartin and what they've learned from McMartin, that law enforcement has gotten much better at handling these kind of accusations that come up than they were then, and much better than you. I wouldn't daily. say that. I would say that child ad- advocacy centers have become much better. I, I think that law enforcement, as we saw in the Greg Kelly right. case, is still going to be biased towards trying to find a, a prosecutable a crime. Right. And so, because we care about the children, and because if a crime's been committed, we want to get the right guy. Right. Because that's important, not just getting or, a guy. Or, or, or to determine that there was a guy in the first place. Yeah, we want to get the right person. Then we have to let somebody that's been trained properly to handle that kind of evidence. And it's probably the most delicate evidence in the world. Because let me tell you something that you can also do. If something didn't happen and your kid just says something fantastic, then you can create false memories in your kid's mind at two, three, four years old that they later need therapy to try to undo the damage that you've done to your kid because you created a memory in them that never happened. Well, not only that, but if you create that memory for the child, which is a validation that they were abused, then you end up putting them in therapy to get treatment for abuse never occurred in the first place right and then you have to go back they might as well have been, at that point they, they might, might as well have been abused when you're when right. you're when you're naked as a three-year-old getting photographed by the police right. that's what is traumatic. that that's traumatic right. that's right. traumatic how is that any that's, less that's traumatic just, exactly. than actual abuse i mean to me it's the it's, same thing it's, it's abuse you're gonna need you're and gonna that's need... what i was told by this by this former student he just said you know my whole life i was I was told to hate these people's guts, to want them dead 
for my entire life from the time I was five years old to the time I was 43 years old, I've had hatred for these people that never did anything wrong to me, and I've wanted them to die. And he just has to deal with that now to kind of purge that anger. He feels like a monkey's been lifted off their shoulders. But if there's one thing we can do, right? You know, when I talk about you guys doing an innocence project, actually trying to get people who are innocently in, who are in jail who are innocent, I, I want to do a reconciliation project. Nobody's in jail because of this now. But if I can reconcile history, if we can get people to look back at cases where no one's in jail but we can have a better understanding for what occurred – to educate people, and then have that reconciliation to where we can actually now, in, in current time, the current story here, this is the old story, the current story is finding 10 to 15 former students who are now 40 to 45 years old and have them recant and come back and say, you know what, we're all now going to admit this wasn't true and we're sorry and we want to come well, together to, to, to help reconcile history. The that problem with great. that, though, too, is that, you know, I watched on that documentary, there's a woman in her mid to late thirties that is convinced that that still happened on the her. oxygen show. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I, and I've interviewed that family and I and, know, and I know she's how like, it, yeah, I mean, you know, the bottom line is this, regardless of what actually happened because of the way that these thoughts and, and whatever, I mean, she's a victim one way or another, you know, right, right. I mean, there's no, there's no need to recant because she was victimized. But she's a unique case because her family was so far involved. Her father was a city councilman. Her mother was one of the most outspoken. Her, the, the, the mother's name is Mary Mae She's one of the most outspoken activists. She was always on the news. I interviewed her several times and but they, they believe this happened to they, their kid. They believe it happened. I think there's other people. There's other – because there's so many kids. I think there's many other kids who are now adults who would feel a lot less inhibited about coming right, forward. Right, but my, my point is this though, right? Regardless of who victimized them, okay, you have this initial ringleader that had her own issues, okay? Right. And then – and, and that was probably the only thing that was actually manufactured. And then you have this freaking letter going out from the police department. And then you have these parents presumably interrogating their children with these and just imprinting on them these crazy notions. And then you have the kids actually at some point adopting and believing that that's yeah, happened to yeah. them. And then you and you just keep going out. And so to me, at this point in time, it might as well have happened to them. And all I'm trying to say to you, all I'm trying, trying to emphasize is that if the book as a documented piece of history enables people 30 years later to go back and read it and go, wow, this is an inarguable. I see what you're saying. That they could maybe say, you know what? Therapy for those people. And to maybe let them be able to say, you know what? I'm going to say now, like this one guy has saying, once and for all, I'm going to say this actually didn't happen to me. This is so clearly bullshit. And I don't want to carry this lie, this monkey if, on my back yes. anymore. Okay, I see what you're saying. And if that in any way lightens their load, and that's a personal victory in their life, I'm a big fan of that. But as far as for the rest of the world, for vindication for these people that were falsely accused, yeah, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, these 40-some-odd these victims that are right. still out there, man, they're – 
they got a shit deal too. They, you no, know what I mean? They, they're, 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 they are victims. They were I mean, used. They and, were used. And, they were used as a tool. Yeah. And the, their parents are victims because their parents were put in a situation to where they were said either defend your child or tell your you're child they're a with liar. us. You're either with right. us or you're against yeah. us. That's yeah. the biggest one. Everybody. And who it. you know? And so that's that's my thing is we need to be aware of the trauma that we can cause our own kids when right. even when we're well-meaning again think chemotherapy we're trying to help them but we're right. killing them and right. we're creating this trauma that can't be undone and so you know for me i just think about man this is a tragedy like this story sucks there's no other way to say yeah, that you're right. there is no happy ending unfortunately you know we got a happy ending in greg's case for greg but guess what there's still at least one maybe two other boys that were victimized by either somebody right. um or a couple of people and all we know is that it didn't it didn't it wasn't caused by greg right. and so but nonetheless whether it was detective daily or whether it was uh, the two boys that lived in the house, you know, these kids now unfortunately have the same road to hoe right. that that these victims do. Right. And and we're we're thirty five years, more or less forty right. years after this, and and it's still happening. And so, it's this is why you need to this is why you need to care. You know, not not because it might happen to you, but because we need to know that history will always repeat itself and both in in the case of wrongful accusations in 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 our criminal system but also in the case of whipping up mass hysteria i think there's so many things that we can become better humans if we will learn from this piece of history and apply it to our lives in as many ways as we can so derek um i'm really um your passion for this case reminded me of our passion uh it, sometimes it feels it feels like you're a crazy person trying to tell everybody what's right. the news let me tell you the news right. and let me tell you what's going on but um this is speaking with you today has really motivated me and um i'm thankful for you coming down well, i appreciate you guys having me down and um it won't be the last time. Yeah, we're going to definitely do it. Hey man, talking to you today makes me feel like a big sissy. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Oh, man. I just, man, I felt so hard. I felt like I was, I felt like I was the sharp end of the stick. And then I look at the work that you've done. And all I can say is um, you've done a lot more work and you've done a lot more good than I ever have. And man, it's an honor to know you. Thank oh, you for wow, coming wow. on our I, show. I appreciate it. it was, we, we felt all along. And if you read, um, Matt's postscript, his authorhood at the end, it talks about the obligation that we felt toward history and to, and to the people who gave us their stories. For you know, He would walk into his garage and see those file cabinets I read that. for years. And he, yeah. would, he would just be like, we got to get this done. We've got to tell this you story. You owe it. You owe, owe it to it, the victims and you owe it to the people that shared. We owe it to everybody. We owe it to Absolutely. all sides. I owe it to those kids who I'm telling you now, I'm hoping can read the truth and be able to say, these horror, as bad as it is that my life was dominated by this horrible lie, all these horrible things, these sexual rapes and pornography, and there's not pictures of me in Denmark that somebody's looking at right now. All these things didn't happen. I wasn't in tunnels. I, 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 I wasn't, wasn't in tunnels right. underneath the daycare. And I, and I can accept the truth because this book 
lays out all the facts and it tells the story the way it should have always been told and they provide a documented proof to show how this was all mistakenly conjured up by a by a mentally ill woman who was well-meaning but made a mistake and that's how this happened and because i don't in my mind remember any of that stuff happening to me and that's what this one guy's telling me now so if if we can do that if we can if we can correct the record and a hundred years from now somebody can pick this book up and go read about what happened in manhattan beach 1984 and we learn something from it and we don't let it happen again so where yeah. can you find it where can you find it Derek? You can, i saw uh, it on amazon you can you, you could buy it on amazon you could buy it through barnes and noble it's not going to sit on the shelves at barnes and nobles at this point if we if we sell enough books um uh because of your great work on the podcast barnes and nobles will throw it up and they'll, they'll pre-order them and have them there but the best way to buy it is through amazon okay. um, i would actually would appreciate it if people would buy it through amazon um whether you buy it on kindle and get it right away and or where you or where you, you do a print on demand and then you just order it and they'll have it to you as fast as you want to pay the shipping but do but if you buy it through amazon do a review on amazon that if we can get more and more reviews it. if you read the reviews now there's they're, they're all five stars. There's only one bad review, and it's a one star review one person gave us who didn't say he didn't like do that the book wasn't good. He just believes that satanic ritual abuse is real. Sure. And complained about that. You're going to get that, man. Yeah, and, and I don't, exactly. I don't judge people by what their haters say. I judge people by who their haters are. I'm not saying that satanic ritual abuse isn't real and doesn't occur sure i'm just saying i in my opinion it didn't happen here it didn't happen here yeah. let, let me just tell you if you're watching this buying this book is is a small way that you can reward this man for his 36 years Dedic dedication since, since 1987 so i guess it's been twin yeah it's been 33 years yeah so for 33 years he's been working on this almost as long as i've been alive and this would be a great way if you if you care about the work that he's done. If you want people to keep doing work like this, look, look, you can help us too. I'm gonna just go on the record here and say our first podcast that was about two weeks ago got five thousand views and only two hundred and eighty of you subscribed. Let me just that's our report card. That's how we that's how we can tell if you like what we're doing. You know, give us a thumbs up, subscribe, and most importantly, buy Derek's book. They must be monsters. I promise you, if you want your money back after you've bought this book, I'll personally give it to you. Just message my page, money back guarantee. They must be monsters, Derek Haddad and the late Matthew Leroy. And what a great way to honor his legacy. Yeah, Thank cool. you much. This is, this is how you become timeless folks. You become timeless by putting work in that benefit other people. And uh, Matthew certainly has done that. And you've honored, honored your friend's memory. Mouth and South, we're out.